Exodus, the 20th chapter. We're going to be very reading, uh, since we just read the Ten Commandments, we will read uh, a very short verse, verse 14. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, a lot of people say, well, hey, <laughs> I've never committed adultery. Might be unmarried, so you know how can I commit adultery if I'm not married? So you know that's that's one commandment I don't have to worry too much about. Uh, well, we don't get off the hook that that easily. Uh, I looked at the Heidelberg Catechism on this uh, question. It's question 108. It says, "What does the seventh commandment teach us?" And the Heidelberg Catechism says that all uncleanness is accursed of God. And therefore, we must with all our hearts detest the same and live chastely and temperately, whether in holy wedlock or in single life. And question 109 asks, does God forbid in this commandment only adultery and such like gross sins? And the answer is, since both our body and soul are temples of the Holy Ghost, he commands us to preserve them pure and holy. Therefore, he forbids all unchaste actions, gestures, words, thoughts, desires, and whatever can entice men thereto, and women, of course. So the scope of the seventh commandment is not only of unfaithfulness in marriage, but also unchastity in single life. Uh, and uh, uh, it's, it's not, uh, not just sexual sins, uh, but all... Uh, I mean, not overt sexual sins, but all, as it says, unchaste actions, gestures, words, thoughts, and desires uh, are violations of the Seventh Commandment. So if you look at it that way, yeah, we all violated the Seventh Commandment uh, by having uh, impure thoughts and and desires. and he, uh, God forbids not only these outward sins of adultery and the inward thoughts and, uh, and such, uh, but uh, the, the uh, Heidelberg Catechism says, all that which can entice men thereto. So let's di- dissect what exactly that means. Uh, all unchaste actions... Uh, Basically, uh, in Ephesians 5, Paul warns us that these are the unfruitful works of darkness, unchaste actions. Unchaste gestures, what are, what are unchaste gestures? You know, unchaste meaning uh, impure, let's use the word, impure gestures. Well, they vary from culture to culture. Uh, but all cultures have some gestures with the hands or the fingers or the arms that communicate crude insults. Um, and it also means uh, lustful and obvious stares or winking to suggest something impure or things like that. Uh, in, in, there's an interesting verse in Isaiah 3. Uh, the Lord says that of the uh, 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 some women in Isaiah 3, they are haughty and walk with stretched forth necks and wanton eyes, walking, mincing as they go and making a tinkling with their feet. So it's a, it's a word picture of prostitutes, basically. Um, you know, smiling and winking and, and enticing men with their clinking jewelry and things. It's kind of a, a very, uh, uh, very strong picture in those words. Uh, impure words. Paul says in Ephesians 4, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. 
uh, even when you hit your finger with the hammer. Uh, you, uh, you have to, uh, you know, some years ago, I, you know, it's, it's a habit. It really is a habit to swear. And it's, it's uh, uh, some years ago, I decided, okay, instead of uh, saying, God damn it, I would say, God bless it. And I thought I was doing real well. And I taught myself to do that when, you know, if I injured myself. God bless it. Then I realized, well, let's just take the Lord's name in vain, too, isn't it? You know, this is bad at saying, God damn it. So uh, it's just, uh, as Jesus said, let your speech be yes, yet, and no, no. And the rest of it is, uh, is uh, evil. Uh, impure thoughts, obviously. Did you ever think about the fact, uh, in Scripture even says, uh, that Christ is to control our thoughts? We're not just to allow our brains or minds to just run wild in our thoughts. Uh, it says in 2 Corinthians 10.5, bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Wow. You know, that, actually, that's fairly new to me. Uh, I hadn't really thought about that. I mean, I've read it, but never thought about it. But, you know, bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Even your thoughts. You know, when you catch yourself thinking something you shouldn't, bring it into the obedience of Christ. Uh, repent of it. And, uh, and, and uh, let Christ take over your thoughts. See, the Lord owns our thoughts just like he owns our body uh, and our soul. He knows every thought we have. He knows everything that we do with our thoughts. Uh, he knows whether or not we indulge our thin- sinful thoughts or go to him in prayer when they invade our minds. Uh, you know, if you play around with sinful thoughts, they're going to com- cause you to commit sin. Uh, if, well, in James, in the book of James, if you look there for a moment, uh, it really gives a, a very, very good picture of the progression of sin and how sin really works. Uh, In James, the first chapter, beginning in verse 14, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire is conceived or lust has conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. So the idea of this bringing forth sin, uh, it just kind of uh, gestates like like a... like a baby, basically, it's, just, it, it's born and then it's it's brought forth. It's gestates and it's brought forth uh, in in birth, and it's but it's it's sinful. And whatever can entice men thereto, there are things that especially enticed fallen men to the lust of the flesh, uh, and the world is full of that. We know. Uh, it's I, I wonder how children today are going to cope with with it if our society stays the same or gets worse than it is. So what are things that entice men or women thereunto? Well, one example among many uh, is the way some mothers and their daughters dress and behave. Uh, you know, how many mothers dress and talk and act like a, basically like a teenage tramp? Uh, as though they're in competition with their daughter to see who can be more, more shameless. Uh, you know, it's no wonder her children would have no respect for her. Uh, they're only giving permission and approval to their daughters to, to engage in debauchery and end up pregnant or on drugs or worse. That's enticement. That's a form of enticement. Or beauty contests for toddlers. All right? uh, and, uh, you know, I was in Walgreens and saw baby clothing uh, with slogans that are supposed to be cute. 
I'm too sexy for my diaper. You know, I mean, what? Who would buy that for a child? You know, for an infant. Uh, saw a newspaper ad. Stilettos for you guys. That's shoes with the you know point real long pointy heel. Stilettos for babies. Yes, real. This is a quote. Yes, really. Stilettos for babies. Super. This is again quoting. Super cute pink ones with straps that'll make their legs look super svelte. Babies. Yeah. Yeah. So, parents buy sleazy clothes for their preteens and toddlers and infants and allow their teenagers to dress like prostitutes, and then they wonder why there's an epidemic of child predators. <laughs> you know. Here's a letter to the editor published in the New York Times a few years ago that I thought sums it up from a woman named Barbara Adams of Hillsdale, New Jersey. She says, Surely the correlation between two articles in the Times, New York Times, shows a very disturbing cultural change in our society. One on the front page depicted the rise of child pornography catering to pedophiles of all types. The other in the style section, headlined, Fashion Aims at Young, reported that the fashion industry is luring younger and younger children with sexy clothes and posing their ads in sexy postures more suitable for young adult women. Heedless and indulgent mothers may laugh off this demand for such clothing or think it's cute, but they are encouraging dangerous behavior that may affect many innocent children. Uh, And this is from an Internet blog site. Quote, it seems strange that parents would want their children dressing so old, especially with all the reports of pedophilia on the news and cable television. The last things they should want to do is give someone a reason to look at their child sexually. Of course, no mother is standing in line at the department store hoping the clothes she buys her child will make her happy, help her fit in, and then get her kidnapped and molested. Parents who buy these this clothing for their children simply aren't thinking. And, you know, children's clothing is only one example. Uh, It's just one of many examples that our sexual appetite has gone crazy. It's corrupted by sin, and this corruption is fed by society. Now, what do I mean it's gone crazy? Well, in his book, Mere Christianity, by C.S. Lewis, which you haven't read, you really must read, uh, he writes that the Bible gives every man and woman two choices, sex within marriage, or total abstinence. Wow. Wow. Sex within marriage or total abstinence. Now that is so completely at odds with our instincts. Either, he says, either one of two things is wrong. Either the Bible is wrong or our instinct is wrong. And since the Bible is God speaking and God cannot be wrong, obviously it's our instinct that's gone crazy. Uh, Now, Lewis says, far beyond what, for example, our instinct for appetite for food is. Uh, If we eat whatever we want, whenever we want, and as much as we want, we'll probably overeat. Maybe we'll eat enough for two people, but we won't eat enough for ten people or twenty people. Our appetite for food goes beyond, a little bit beyond what our body needs, but for most people, not enormously. But if a healthy young man indulged his sexual instinct whenever he wanted, and each time a baby was born, he could easily populate a small town. Lewis says, my point is that the sexual instinct is corrupted far, far out of proportion to its biological function. It'd be like you eating enough for 30 people or 50 people or 100 people. Uh, 
in it's 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 corrupted far out of proportion to the other instincts. And Lewis has a great illustration, which he's brilliant at. He says, you can get a large audience together to see strippers. You can get a whole bunch of men together to see strippers. Well, suppose you go to a country where, where well-fed people flock to a theater to see somebody bring a covered plate onto the stage, and they slowly lift the cover so everybody could see, just before the lights went out, a roast leg of lamb. Would you think that in that country something's gone wrong with their appetite for food? And would not anyone who'd grown up in a different world think there's something equally wrong with the state of the sex appetite, the sex instinct in us? Here's another way of looking at it, Lewis says. There are very few people who want to eat things that aren't food or do things with food other than eating it. In other words, perversions of the food appetite are relatively, actually extremely rare. But perversions of the sex instinct are numerous. You don't need any examples. You know what I'm talking about. So there's something very, very wrong with the sex instinct of modern men. It is grotesquely twisted by sin. Now, don't make the mistake that unbelievers think, and even some well-meaning but legalistic Christians think the Bible says, well, sex, the body, the pleasure, that's wrong in itself. You know, it's just evil. Uh, there are many people who say sex is nothing to be ashamed of, and that is true within the boundaries of marriage that God has set up. But if they mean the state into which the sexual instinct has now got is nothing to be ashamed of, then they are wrong. Uh, Lewis says, there is nothing to be ashamed of in enjoying your food. There would be everything to be ashamed of if most people made food the main interest of their lives and spent their time looking at pictures of food and dribbling and smacking their lips. There'd be something wrong with that. So, in fact, Christianity is the only faith that esteems the body because it is the creation of God. It's the only faith that believes that. And remember, God himself took on a human body. Would he have done that if the body was dirty or evil? And after his death on the cross, he appeared back on earth not as a spirit or a ghost, but in a body, a human body, a human uh, resurrected body, but a body. He said in Luke 24, Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. This is after he died on the cross was, was put in the tomb and resurrected. He appeared to many, many people. The Bible says he appeared to hundreds of people. And he said, Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones, as you see me have. See, Christ took on his resurrected body after his death. He ascended into heaven with it. And as far as we know, he still has it. We're going to have, I believe he does, we're going to have a body in the new earth forever, our resurrection bodies. So if you want to learn more about what the Bible teaches about this and what it will be like in the new heaven and the new earth, uh, listen to my series on life after death at sermonaudio.com. No, Christianity is the only faith that approves of the body, sex, and pleasure within the boundaries for which God created them, which perfects them. Perfects them. See, outside of these boundaries is misery. Those boundaries are not meant to restrict you. They're meant to keep evil out. 
Did you ever think about it that way? Those boundaries aren't meant to keep you in. They're meant to keep evil out. The sexual instinct is confined within the walls of marriage in order to keep evil out of your life. If you ignore the boundaries, you're opening yourself up to a world of hurt and misery outside those boundaries. Depression, self-loathing, guilt, jealousies, and within marriage, if you're married, hatred, divorce, physical abuse, broken homes, drugs, children scarred for life, the list goes on and on. Often it ends in STDs and alcoholism, as I say, drug addiction, even sometimes murder and suicide. That's what's waiting beyond those boundaries. All because we ignored the boundaries which are set up by God to protect us and keep evil out. See, we thought by ignoring the boundaries we'd have freedom. But what we find on the other side is the worst kind of evil imaginable. Again, Lewis writing in Mere Christianity, quote, we grow up surrounded by propaganda in favor of impurity, unchastity, you know, sex, free sexual relations. By the way, he wrote this in the early 1940s. Imagine what he'd be writing today. He says, there are people who want us to keep our sex instinct inflamed in order to make money off of us. Because, of course, a man with an obsession has very little sales resistance. God knows our situation. He will not judge us as though we had no difficulties to overcome. What matters is the sincerity and perseverance of our will to overcome them. Before we can be cured, we must, we must want to be cured. We must want to be cured. Those who really wish for help will get it, but for many modern people, even the wish is difficult. A famous Christian told us long ago that when he was a young man, he prayed constantly for chastity. But years later, he realized that while his lips had been saying, Oh, Lord, make me chaste, his heart had been secretly adding, But please don't do it just yet. So, for those of you who are unmarried, there are two reasons why it's especially difficult for you to desire, let alone achieve, complete chastity. The first reason is that the world, our flesh, and the devil constantly tempt us. I mean, you cannot open a magazine, you cannot turn on TV without being assaulted about sex. We're also we're assaulted with the propaganda that our, de- our desires are natural. Expressing them is healthy. Repressing them, oh, that's unhealthy. That's a lie. And like all the, the most convincing lies, though it's based on truth, Our sexual desire is natural. God created it. The lie is that it's natural to do anything you want to satisfy it. As long as it's not illegal and the sex lobby is working as hard as they can to repeal all laws against sexual perversion. So their attitude is, well, as long as it's not illegal, it doesn't hurt anybody. It's the right thing to do. And if you repress it, you know, all sorts of bad things will happen to you. Well, that is a lie. And we've already gone over the list of what, what is awaiting outside that boundary. But Satan just loves it when people fall for that line. The second reason chastity is so difficult, the first reason is that we get all this propaganda that's healthy uh, to express them in any way as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. Uh, well, if you, if you think along that line, I guess bestiality is okay. And as long as you're, uh, you know, a child agrees to it that, that you know, 
pedophilia is okay, right? I mean, as long as nobody, as long as they agree to it, you know, you're not whipping, you know, hurting somebody, even whipping somebody if they agree to it, I guess that's okay too. I mean, that's, that's as nuts as it goes. And the second reason chastity is so difficult is that we make it so ourselves. We think chastity is impossible. I once asked uh, Colonel Scott Carpenter, one of the first astronauts, during the long training when you were on the launching pad ready to be fired into space, were you ever afraid? Did you ever think, well, this isn't possible? He said, in effect, you put all that out of your mind. Um, You can't afford to have such thoughts. You have a job to do. So, Christian, if you're unmarried, you can't afford to think chastity is impossible. You can't clutter your mind with thoughts. You have a job to do, and you can't do it alone through your own power. You have to have the power of the Holy Spirit living in you. You have to be crucified with Christ. Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, sometimes, and maybe for a long time, you think God isn't answering your prayers. It's not really with you. What you think or feel, though, is irrelevant. If you truly repent of your sins and trust in Christ as your Savior, His Spirit is in you whether you feel it is or not. Your feelings have nothing to do with it. After each failure, ask forgiveness, pick yourself up and try again, bathed in prayer. Very often, what God helps us towards is not the virtue itself, but this power of trying again. However important, whatever the virtue may be, courage, chastity, truthfulness, whatever you're struggling with, this process trains us in habits of the soul, which are more important, as we talked about before the service today, about the importance of prayer and the reasons for prayer. It cures our illusions about ourselves and teaches us to depend on God. We learn, on the one hand, that we cannot trust ourselves even in our best moments, and on the other, that we need not despair even in our worst where our failures are forgiven. The only fatal thing is to sit down content with anything less than perfection. Just give up. Well, I can't fight it. i got to give up. Indulge it. Did you know that the Bible says that a society awash in sexuality like ours is a sign that society is sold out to a false religion? Do you know that both the Bible teaches and history demonstrates that acceptance of homosexuality is one of the last stages of the decline and the sure destruction of a society? It's been that way throughout history. Uh, John Murray explained Romans 1, 22 and 25. Well, let me just read it. I know you know it. In the first chapter of Romans... Lord says, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor of their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And also likewise the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of error which was meat or which which is uh, appropriate. And God goes on to say, even though they, they don't want to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are evil, etc., etc. 
John Murray explained that text. He says, religious degeneration is penalized by abandonment to immorality. Sin in the religious realm is punished by sin in the moral sphere. That is the world. When the church doesn't do its job, when churches become nothing more than social clubs and free daycare, when worship becomes entertainment, when preaching is basically a comedy act spiced with some motivational platitudes, when people like their church because it makes them feel good about themselves, that's when God judges both the church first and then he brings his hammer down on society. And it's what he's doing here in our society. He's judging the church. Most churches have just gone by the wayside, and he's bringing his hammer down on, on our society. First Peter 4.17, very chilling verse. But the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God, and it first begins with us. What shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? Judgment must begin at the house of God. And the explosion of immorality in this country, it's one of the consequences of a generation growing up being taught in government schools and in many churches that morality is relative, that right and wrong depends on the circumstances, time and geography. You know, hey, what's wrong with for you might be right for me. You know, don't preach at me, leave me alone. You have no right to force your morality down my throat. Live and let live. Keep your religion to yourself. Religion belongs in church. You know, separation of church and state. Another one of my favorites. Uh, what those who reject God's word think about Christians is we're trying to force them to live by the standards of the Bible. Christians should never try to convince other people to live any other way than they choose to live. That's not the gospel. There's a vast difference between proclaiming the gospel and engaging the culture for Christ on the one hand and lecturing people about their sins on the other hand. There are some people who do that in the name of Christianity, but that damages the cause of Christ. You can't force people to be, no, to be moral, except by the power of civil government, and that doesn't save them. It's to protect the rest of society. Uh, Jesus said in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, go all, into all the world and lecture them on their sins, tell them to live a moral life, and that's how they'll be saved. We awake here? <laughs> that's not what Jesus said in the Great Commission. He didn't say lecture them on their sins and tell them to live a moral life. He said make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things that commanded you. First is conversion. Make disciples of them. Call them to make disciples. Teach them about the risen Christ. So not to point out their sins and telling them how they live is wrong. That's not the gospel. People like that deserve to be called acting holier than thou. Right? First pull out the log from your own eyes so you can help others with a speck in theirs. No, we're to present the gospel. If people believe, they'll be moral. If they, They're not going to live a moral life unless they're believers. They might do it for convenience to make themselves feel good or to look better in front of other people, uh, but the, it's not—it's not from their heart. It's only from your heart when you're converted. I'm gonna—got more to say, but I want to wrap it up just to finish with saying: if you believe in living by your own standards of morality, 
You know, if you believe that that's healthy, you know, just let it out and don't repress anything. Uh, whether it's giving yourself over to lust or greed or sloth or whatever the sins are, you've given yourself a license to do anything you want. Uh, Proverbs 21.2 says, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes. I mean, Hitler's last will and testament that he wrote in the Berlin bunker hours before he killed himself uh, is interesting reading in light of Proverbs 21. Hitler declared that everything he did was right, and he tried to justify it. See, the Proverbs 21 doesn't end there, however. It goes on to say, But the Lord weighs the hearts. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. See, the Lord doesn't care what you think is right or wrong. Evil men, in Proverbs 28, evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand all. Proverbs 28. Uh, As I said, Proverbs 28. See, man can't decide for himself what's just and unjust. You can't decide for yourself what's right and what's wrong. That's what... Satan said would happen, that serpent said would happen uh, if Eve and Adam ate of the forbidden fruit. Then your eyes will be open and you will know good and evil. You'll decide what's right and wrong for yourself. That's exactly what's happened. Civil governments can't decree justice apart from the Lord, and man can't decide what's right and wrong. Only the word of the Lord, the Bible, tells us what is right and wrong. So listen to the word of God. Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the way you're to live. You're to live, you live, but Christ, not really, because Christ lives in you. And the life which you are to live now, you live by the faith of the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. Let's pray. Indeed, Father, these are difficult lessons because they they are so so at odds with with our, our instincts and our feelings. Uh, so, Father, we uh, we know that we have no strength in ourselves. Uh, so, Lord, we uh, we ask that uh, the fact that uh, Thy strength is perfected in our weakness, Father. And uh, we have plenty of weakness, so there's plenty of strength uh, for, for thee to perfect it in us. So we ask thy help, Father, um, for those uh, particularly unmarried, uh, Lord, that uh, they would, uh, Lord, that you would give them uh, strength and courage. And, and when they fall, to, to give them renewed strength and courage and never, ever, ever give up. Father, we also... Uh, have certain uh, certain prayer requests, Lord. Uh, we, uh, Father, we uh, pray for uh, Josh Rickman, who uh, was in that car accident, and uh, Lord, uh, ask for quick healing. We're happy that he and his family are believers, uh, but uh, we understand that uh, there's a possibility of a fractured vertebrae, and Lord, we uh, ask, Lord, that that. Uh, would be thy will that that is not the case and that he uh, be recovered quickly. We praise thee that he was the only one injured in this accident. Lord, we ask that uh, this be a, a great spiritual blessing on him and his family and the, and those in the car and, the fam- and those families around them, that they would see thy working in it and uh, come to faith in thee if they do not have faith and come to stronger faith if they do, Lord. 
and uh, we thank thee for the safety of the duels, and uh, we're glad that they're back with us, Father. Uh, we ask uh, for the that uh, thou would be with us uh, this week as we go about our tasks, whether in the house or outside the home, teaching children or learning. Uh, if we are if we are students, uh, let us be diligent in, in our work, Father. Uh, whatever we are called to do, and put those in our path that need to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, Father. And Father, we pray for unity in this church. Uh, Lord, we have been blessed with great unity, uh, but Father, we uh, ask for a, a special blessing of of, uh, of joy and uh, fellowship with one another, and let us be in touch with one another during the week. I realize we live far from each other, and we can't physically be together all uh, very much, but. Uh, Father, we do ask for a, a deeper uh, sense of fellowship of brother and that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. and uh, Show us the real meaning of that, Father. And uh, if we have any differences or disagreements, uh, Father, uh, uh, let us discuss them and, and uh, face them openly. And, Father, bathe, that we would bathe that in prayer. Uh, for it is in Jesus' name we pray. Psalm 116a in the larger Psalter.